All right, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. And it is great to study Torah together. This week's Torah portion is Shlach. We've spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the first three days of the week, or at least of our DBP week, we spent this time talking about one episode, the episode of the Miraglim, the episode of the spies. Now, as I mentioned, they weren't really spies, at least not in concept. In the conception of who they were, they weren't really spies. They thought they were spies. They wanted to be spies. They bought their spy gear and their spy equipment. Um, and they essentially deviated from their mission and moved it into something more of a uh, decision-making type uh, position than one of reporting the facts and believing in God. Because of that, well, their mission... Uh, their mission uh, blew up, and they ultimately caused uh, 40, 40 years of wandering, 39 years, 39 additional years of wandering, where the Jewish people uh, were prohibited from going into the land until that generation passed away, and then the next generation came in. So that's, as we know, that's kind of the basic story. I explained yesterday, I just kind of want to reset this because it's going to come up today again. I explained yesterday that on a deeper level, on a mystical level, the Miraglim, the spies, actually had a good intention. What was their intention? Their intention was to keep everyone spiritual, to keep everyone secluded, locked away, isolated, in a cocoon, in a bubble, in a spiritual, in a holy spiritual environment without getting trapped into the materialism of the world and into the other physical, uh, physical stuff. That was the goal on a deeper level, that was the deeper motivation of the spies. What's interesting is, you know, when we talk about motivation, it's hard to know why somebody does anything. You know, I mean, you think you know, you see somebody doing something and you, you can kind of put together a narrative in your own mind as to why they did that. Or you might, um, or they might, or it could even be yourself and you think that you're doing something for a certain reason. And sometimes we're wrong about others and about ourselves as well. And even even if we even when we think we know why we're doing something, it might be coming from a, a much deeper place and a, and a totally different place altogether. It might take years to discover what it was really that was driving the person, especially when it comes to fear, right? When it comes to fear, fear is very a very strong motivator. And we do a lot of things out of fear. We do things for other reasons also. But a lot of a lot of things are driven from a place of fear. And the question is, okay, what are we actually afraid of? So in this case, the reason why I mentioned fear is because that's exactly what the story uh, uh, pivots on. So in this case, the spies come back with a report that sows fear into the hearts and souls of the people. And presumably it's because they themselves, the spies themselves, the 10 of them at least, they were afraid. They were afraid of, the, of, of, of not being able to conquer the land of Israel, of being killed upon entry by these giants, consumed by the land. That was their fear. But again, when you go a little bit deeper, and, and you know, we, we know this through the lens of psychology, through the lens of Kabbalah, etc. When you go a little bit deeper, you might realize that, well, maybe the fear that you thought was the fear is not actually the fear. Maybe there's another fear. And in this case, according to Kabbalah, the fear was not the fear of the enemy. It was the fear of self. It was the fear of not having this, the inner strength to be able to withstand the spiritual, um, 
the spiritual challenge, the spiritual uh, test that would lie ahead. And that fear, even if they couldn't articulate at that moment, that fear drove them to feel an overall, an overarching fear, which then led them to, uh, to express a fear that's perhaps more, more tangible. What I'm suggesting is that it's not necessarily that the two realities, one that they were afraid of the giants, one they were afraid of materialism, they're not necessarily uh, exclusive, mutually exclusive. They could actually coexist because fear can be driven by multiple points. There could be an inner fear and an outer fear or a more internal fear and a more external fear. The internal fear is the spiritual fear. The external fear is the physical fear. Either way, they can work together just to create this, uh, this energy of, of trepidation and anxiety. And a person says, you know what? I'm out. I'm not doing it. I'm not going in. Not happening. So the point is that oftentimes we think we know what motivates us. Really, there's something deeper in this case. What, what, what the deepest motivation was a sense of wanting to remain spiritual, wanting to remain holy and not to succumb to materialism, which takes us to today's reading which is actually going to begin with the second half of yesterday's reading, which, was, which is very curious, because at this point, the Torah completely breaks from the narrative of the spies and gets into laws related to karbanot, offering sacrifices. Complete 180. I don't even know if it's a 180. It's just a completely different topic. I mean, we're talking about... I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of an analogy. We're talking about baseball, and now we're talking about apples. It's not even a different sport. It's just a completely different topic. We're talking about the spies and Moses and Israel and God and, and 40 years of wandering, and now it's about, as you'll see, now it's about uh, sacrifices. Let's jump in. There's the simple reason and the deeper reason why, this, why these laws follow the narrative uh, that we opened the Torah portion with, and uh, my goal is to articulate both today. All right, so without further ado, let's jump in. And let me get to the right page or the right screen on my side. Here we go. Okay, let me share my screen. And let's jump right in. All right, Torah reading for Shlach. This is reading number four, which is yesterday's reading, but we are more than halfway through Numbers chapter 15, verse number one. It makes sense, by the way, that the whoever set up chapter and verse right, would have set a new chapter at this point because it's, it seems completely different. Yet in Torah, in, the, in our tradition, this is all part of reading number four, which means it's all part of one, one piece. So clearly there is a connection. Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you arrive in the land of your dwelling place, that means your permanent, the permanent, the land of your permanence, not uh, the temporary sojourn in the desert, but when you arrive in the promised land, which I am giving you, God says, and you make a fire offering to the Lord, an ola. An ola is a fire offering. An ola, as we know, was a, um, a voluntary fire offering. It's somebody who just wants to give a gift to God. God, I was thinking about you. Here's a gift. Here's a, fi- a burnt fire offering. That's what an ola was. It was completely consumed on the altar. You gave it completely for God. You didn't take anything from it. The priest didn't get anything from it. It went totally to God. It was a gift, pure gift. 
It wasn't because something happened, the Thanksgiving offering, pure generosity and love. So when you come to the promised land that I'm giving you, God says, and you make a fire offering to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice, namely a peace offering. So now we have, it could either be a uh, burnt offering or a peace offering for an expressed vow or for a voluntary offering or on your festivals. Now it's open. So it either could be the result of a promise. I, I pledge I will give an offering or no promise. You just showed up one day to the temple or to the Mishkan with a, with a sacrifice or it's a holiday offering for the holiday. And the agenda is to provide a pleasing fragrance for the Lord. And, the, and the, the offering is being brought from the cattle or from the sheep, as we've specified in the book of Leviticus. So here's the payoff. So the one who brings his offering to the Lord shall present, listen to this, a meal offering containing one-tenth fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. So the point here is, anytime you bring an ola, which is a voluntary burnt offering, a zevach, a peace offering, or a festival offering, any of these scenarios, you would accompany the animal offering with a meal offering. Now, in prior, in the book of Leviticus, we've talked about the meal offering, but the meal offering could be a form of the other offerings. Sometimes you can bring an offering, and depending on how much, uh, you know, depending on the means of the person who's bringing the offering, they could either bring an animal or a bird or a meal offering. In this case, it's not an either or, it's a both. When you bring the animal, these animal offerings of these categories, you always accompany it with a meal offering, which is basically flour, which is one-tenth of an aphah, of fine flour mixed with a quarter hint of oil. And there's more and a quarter of a hint of wine for a libation. Libation means pouring. They would pour it uh, on the altar. You shall prepare with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. So these are, this is the meal offering, which is flour with oil, with uh, a wine libation, and that accompanies the burnt offerings for each lamb. Or for a ram, you shall present the meal offering containing two Tenths fine flour mixed with a third of a hint of oil. You up the quantity. So a lamb is smaller, obviously. A ram is larger. So now you get uh, um, you got a larger animal. You got to bring a larger accompaniment. And the accompaniment now is not one-tenth of an aphah fine flour. Now it's two-tenths of an aphah, which is basically one-fifth. And now a third of a hint. Instead of a quarter hint, it's a third of a hint of oil. You're just upping, you're upping the, uh, the quantities. And a third of a hint of wine for libation. Instead of a quarter hint, it's now a third of a hint of wine for the for the pouring of the wine. You shall offer up a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. Okay, great. So we got it. Anytime you bring these types of animal offerings, you accompany it with flour mixed with oil and some wine that you pour. Great. Um, and depending on the animal, depending on the sacrifice, the quantities of the flour and the oil and the wine. Great. The obvious question is, which I've been kind of leading into is, why this here? This is like sacrificial law. Number one, it, should, it belongs in the book of Leviticus, where all this stuff is talked about. And number two, why here, 
right after we kind of wrap up the story of the spies and the fallout and the decree of 40 years of wandering. Like, what's, what's going on over here? Rashi helps us out a little bit. Okay, Rashi gives us the technical reason, which is beautiful. And then we're going to go a little bit deeper. Let's look at Rashi. Okay, Rashi begins right here on verse number two of the, uh, of the reading of, of the section we just read. God tells Moses, tell the people, when you arrive in the land of your dwelling place, etc. So Rashi, when you arrive, listen to this. Rashi doesn't ask the question and give an answer. He just gives the answer. He inf- God informed them, the people, that they would enter the land. There you go. That's your answer. Let me explain the question and the answer. question is, the question that, I, that I've asked is, why does God suddenly talk to the Jewish people about the offerings after the sin of the spies? And the answer is, God was telling them that they would enter the land. In other words, they might have been crestfallen. They might have been heartbroken, thinking, that's it, we're never going to go in, our dream is shattered, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's we're done, we're finished, it's, it's over, it's too late, we messed up, right? It's... Uh, it's done. Um, give me one second. Let me stop sharing for one second. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on. Give me one second. Here. Okay. All right. We are back. Um, Let me share my screen. Let's jump back in. All right. Here we go. Um, So Rashi explains that the reason why God is telling Moses to tell the people about the offerings is because of this line. When you arrive in the land of your dwelling place, which I am giving you, God is basically doubling down on the promise that the people will ultimately enter the land of Israel. It's going to happen. Yes, you're on a 40-year freeze, essentially, but it's going to happen, which is what Rashi is saying. He informed them that they would enter the land. Can you imagine, otherwise, the despondency and the despair and the just the absolute sense of futility in, uh, in, in, in them ever being able to enter the land? That might have been the sense. The sense was, it's never going to happen. We've, we've been iced on this. We've been iced out. You know, God says, no, not for 40 years. He's going to push us off again. It's never going to happen. We, we messed up. We lost it. It's done. So God says, don't listen. I have plenty of time. God has all the time in the world, right? God is timeless. So there is no issue. There is no challenge um, in making this happen. God says it's going to happen. It's not if you enter the land. It's when you enter the land. These are the laws. So this was not just some technicalities about the, about the sacrifices, as it appears on the surface, but it's rather a boost of confidence and, and, a, and a, uh, a message of um, assuredness that this is going to happen. They will enter the land. All right, let's get into the nitty-gritty nitty with Rashi, and you make a fire offering. This is not a command, right? You don't have to bring a fire offering. It's a voluntary offering. But it means that when you arrive there and you decide to make a fire offering, Etc. Uh, that it should be that it should form me contentment, or if you make a fire offering, 
right? For the obligatory festival sacrifice, which I require you to make on festival. So either it's a voluntary personal offering or it's an obligatory festival sacrifice. Either way, it should be accompanied with, as we saw, the meal offering, the flour, with the, which is the flour with the oil, plus some wine. Um, the one who brings the offering shall present, here we go, Rashi, you shall offer up libations and a meal offering for each animal. The meal offering is completely consumed and the oil is blended into it. So you would basically mix the oil into the flour, put it on the altar, whoosh, the whole thing goes up. The wine, Rashi clarifies, is put into basins from which it runs onto the altar and down to the foundations as we learn in Tractate Sukkah. Basically, it's poured into like a drainage system type like type thing. It's like poured into, I don't want to say like the word gutter, but it's kind of like that. And it goes into a basin and then it runs into the altar and then down to the foundation, kind of just runs down. Okay, that is what is done when you bring the offerings. Um, for each lamb, Rashi, this relates to everything mentioned above, the meal offering, the oil and the wine, that is per lamb. So if you're bringing two lambs, you would double the quantities, obviously, because you do that amount per lamb, not per person. Just Rashi, clari- the Torah clarifies that and Rashi explains. Or for a ram, if the animal you bring is a ram, then the quantities are greater. Um, interesting. Our sages expounded the word or to include a palgas, which is a sheep in its 13th month, which is neither a lamb nor a ram, for libations of a ram. Okay, well, there you go. Now we know. Um, not only two categories, lambs and rams, but even a third category, a middle category, when it's not a, a little lamb and not a big ram, but it's kind of like in the middle, it's a sheep. So that has the, the, the classification of a ram insofar as the amount of flour, oil, and wine goes. I want to now share an insight um, from Hasidus, from the Rebbe's teachings, on this, which is a bit of a, again, a bit of a deeper understanding. Getting back to the question of what's with the juxtaposition? Why are we talking about flour offerings, uh, flour and oil and wine right after the story of the spies? Rashi says to remind, the, to, to encourage the people, don't give up. It's all good. Um, uh, you'll be okay. Uh, you're gonna go. Your kids will go into the land. It's a, it's a promise. It's a guarantee. Okay, that's a simple reason. On a deeper level, we got something else. Reb explains that uh, following along the lines of what we said, what I said yesterday, and what I mentioned already earlier today, what was the intention of the spies? The spies wanted to remain spiritually safe and not have to enter the fray of physicality. They went. They they didn't want to enter into a material and mundane environment where they would be completely consumed. They basically didn't want the challenge of having to earn a living, become a farmer, you know, work the land, uh, you know, earn money and, and spend money and, and not get consumed by the experience. They said, you know what? Forget about it. Let's stay here. We'll have money from heaven, water from the, the well of Miriam, and that's it. Live a, live a good spiritual life. And so God immediately after the story counters their perception, their perspective with the law that we just read. What happens to a burnt offering, right? There's different types of offerings, but a burnt offering, which is the first type that's mentioned in right after the spies, the Ola, the burnt offering, is you take the animal, 
And essentially, you burn the whole thing on the altar. The whole thing goes up in smoke. There's a fire. Fire rises. When you burn something, its ashes rise up. Right? It rises. So the Ola offering represents ascent. Go rising up, which is what the spies wanted to do. They wanted to live a life of ascent, a life that is about ascendancy, a, a life that is trained toward God exclusively and about getting away from the mundane and climbing up toward God, ascending in smoke, if as it were, to Hashem. That's not, but that was a mistake because their mission and the, the mission of the Jewish people was to enter the land of Israel. This was a sin. This was a mistake at the end of the day because their mission was to go into the land and get a job and become farmers and work the land and make money and have to spend money and still bring heaven down to earth, not to run away from earth, but to bring heaven down to earth. And that's why God says, even when you bring an, a, an offering that goes up, don't forget about bringing the flour and the oil and the wine. Those things are poured down. I know that Rashi said that the fire is con- that the flower is consumed ultimately, so it also, in a sense, goes up. Um, but in a very large measure, this the, the message was about going down. The, certainly, the libation. Give me. I'm sorry about this. Give me one more, one more second. Okay. So essentially, the way the Rebbe explains this is that God was indicating as a message for all time, for the spies and for the people at the time and for us, for all time, that even when you're in a state of ascent, as an Ola, as a burnt offering, totally consumed, you're on fire, you're so excited. Don't forget about the libation. Don't forget about pouring the wine. Don't forget about integration. Don't forget about taking that inspiration and grounding it into something tangible. This is a recurring theme in Kabbalah, in Hasidic philosophy, in the Rebbe's teaching. It's the same story, essentially, as Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron who passed away. Right? They went into the Holy of Holies and they brought an offering they shouldn't. They got too close. And what happened was their souls lifted up. They, 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 they elevate, they, they ascended. Their souls separated from their bodies. And although that sounds spiritually romantic, that wasn't, that wasn't right. It was considered to be something incorrect because God doesn't want us to run away. God wants us to integrate. Yes, there are moments of inspiration, moments in which we do need to get away from it for a little bit. We have times of prayer and study and meditation in which we get away from stuff. But then the ultimate is not to remain in that place, right, exclusively, but to bring it back into the real world, into the physical activities that we all take part of and integrate it on that level and bring heaven down to earth, make, make this environment a holy space. And that's what the spies missed. They missed that memo. And so God says right after the spies, by the way, every time you bring a, a burnt offering, don't forget to pour some wine. Don't forget to come back down. Don't forget to integrate it. Because if you just run away with a burnt offering, it's the same mistake. Same mistake. So we have Yom Kippur, a day of the, a day of the year, which we don't eat, we don't drink, right? We, like, we shun all physical pleasures. And then... And it's a day that we're like the angels. We were white, traditionally. It's like we're, we're on a level of angels. And that's one day a year. And then the next day, we're back down to earth because the goal is to integrate, to bring it back down. All right, so that's just a quick insight from the Rebbe on this topic. All right, let's now jump into today's reading, reading five, which gives us a little bit more details about the offerings and about the libations.
Okay, here we go. If you prepare, I mean, it continues what we just read, right? If you prepare a young bull, so we had a lamb, a small animal. Then we had a ram. Was it a ram? We had a, ram, we had a lamb and a ram, yes. So a ram was accompanied by a little bit of flour, oil, and wine. A ram, a little bit more. And then the, the next one is a bull. If you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice by expressing a vow or for a peace offering for the Lord, any of these scenarios that you would bring a young bull. So with the young bull, again, the same thing. You shall offer up a meal offering consisting of three-tenths of an eighth of fine flour mixed with half a hint of oil. We've just upped the quantities. The larger the animal, the larger the accompaniment. It's a very simple formula. Lamb is small, ram is larger, a bull even larger. And you shall offer up half a hin of wine for a libation, a fire offering, a, a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. So basically, just, just uh, to be clear here, the, the scale for the flour is a tenth, two tenths, or three tenths, depending on the size of the animal. One tenth for the small one, two tenths for the middle size, three tenths for the larger size. And for the oil and the wine, it's a quarter of a hin. I'm sorry, it is a, what was the first one? The first one was, give me a second. The first one was a quarter of a hin. And then a third of a hin. There we go, a quarter, a third, and then a half. So again, also the liquids are going up. So the dry goes up a tenth. So uh, uh, one tenth, two tenths, three tenths and a quarter, a third, and a half. Beautiful. I feel like we're following a recipe here. All right, let's continue. Um, so it shall be... Uh, um, yeah, we did that. 11. So shall, so shall it be done for each ox or ram or for a young sheep or young goat. Same thing for all these animals. In accordance with the number of animals you offer up, so shall you present for each one according to their numbers. Every native born shall do it in this manner to offer up a fire offering, a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. And if a proselyte resides with you or those among you in future generations, and he offers up a fire offering of pleasing fragrance to the Lord, as you make it, so shall he make it. Same law, same formula. If you bring this type of animal, it's this amount of oil, uh, flour, oil, and wine. That animal it goes up, etc. One rule applies to the assembly for yourselves and for the proselyte who resides with you. One rule applies throughout your generations, just as it is for you, so it is for the proselyte before the Lord. There shall be one law and one ordinance for you and the proselyte who resides with you. By the way, this is something that I've spoken about in different classes uh, previously. And I believe the course that this took a lot of focus, that, that focused in on this for one of the lessons was, the course called, um, hold on, the course was called Judaism's Gifts to the World. And it was all about Jewish ideas that have gone viral, so to speak, and have you know, had a positive impact on the world at large. And one of the classes was about, you know, ended up in this idea that, you know, when you respect the individual and you value every individual, and it's absolute, it's not relative. It's not because you are ascribing value because if, if it's you or I are ascribing value, then it's subjective. But if there's objective value, then that becomes universal. 
And this leads to a system of law that is universal, that doesn't pick and choose who the laws apply to and who the laws not apply to. Famously, in ancient Rome, there were two sets of laws, one for the haves and one for the have-nots. So if two people committed the same crime, depending on your uh, nobility, depending on your status in society, you would have a different sense, Uh, sorry, a different um, set of punishments that were available for you. And, and even till today, you know, even today in the United States and, you know, the wonderful democracy that we're in, we still have vestiges of that. We still have traces of that where, you know, at least we could ask the question, you know, is law and justice applied fairly and equally? And it's, it's, it's a valid question at least to ask and to, and to pursue. But Judaism, as we, as we see today, at least with regards to the sacrificial service and the formula says it's the same law, one law. Whether you or the proselyte or the stranger amongst you, it doesn't make a difference. It's the same law. It's one law for all. And, and there's like three verses that kind of repeat the same thing. And to me, it's a message not only about this specific instance, but overall. You know, I mean, are there, distinct, are, is there, are there some areas in which things are a little asymmetrical? Sometimes. But overall, Jewish law is pretty um, insistent on being fair and applicable across the board. Because any system that picks and chooses is not really a just system. And we can't really call it a divine system either. A system that's based on divine values is going to be in that realm of absolute, unequivocal, etc. And it reminds us to value each other equally, to value each other um, infinitely, and not to, uh, to pick and choose. So uh, as we wrap up for today, what we covered was the, the rest of reading four, the entire reading five, in which the Torah shifts, the narrative shifts away from the drama of the spies and into details about the sacrifices. On a basic level, it's because God was reassuring the people, it's going to happen, you're going to go into the land, you'll inherit the land, all will be good. On a deeper level, God was, in the specific, looking at the specifics, God was telling the Jewish people, even as you bring an ascent offering, a fire offering, even as you're in the space of transcendence and meditation, don't forget the wine. Don't forget the libation. Don't forget to come back down to earth also, because that's, that's where ultimately God wants that inspiration to be translated into and to make a difference. All right. That's it for today. Make sense? Yes. Thank you, Rabbi Ari. Can I ask a question going back a few days? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking about, you know, the fetching and um, I was really thinking about Moses and his, when the decision was made that he wasn't going to go into the land of Israel. Yeah. And I know, I, I think I remember it was like, because he chose to strike the rock instead of speaking to it. Is that, was that the deciding factor that you've told us before? You're asking an excellent question. And it's similar to what we read this week about when God decided for the 40 years of wandering, how it kind of like was formalized now after the first year, so there's only 39 years. So how do you get 40? Because really God had thought about it already by the sin of the golden calf. So yes, the hitting of the rock, and by the way, the hitting of the rock happens at the end of the 40 years. Like a few months before they were going to go into land. That's when he hits the rock and God says, oh, you hit the rock, you're out. For 39 years prior, already there are hints to the fact that he's not going in. Because God says only Caleb and Joshua are going to go in. He doesn't say Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, right? He doesn't specify Moses. And so the implication is on some level subtle, right? On some, maybe you would say, well, he doesn't have to mention Moses because Moses was a Levite and Moses was the leader. So who, you know, obviously Moses is going to go in. 
But he doesn't say Moses. He doesn't specify Moses. And uh, according to the commentaries, that's already a hint that foreshadowing, yeah, maybe that had to happen in order to like, you know, really formalize it. But already it was known or on some level decreed that he wasn't going to go in. Look, there's there are multiple reasons for this. Um, sorry, even before we get to multiple reasons, remember last week's Torah portion? Remember when Moses asked, when the people asked for meat and Moses was like, God, give me some help here. And God says, okay, set, appoint 70 people and they're going to have some of your spirit and you know, prophecy and whatever. And then he chose 72 and only 70 of them got the call and two of them stayed behind. But they also began to prophecy and they started saying something that rankled Joshua. And he said, Moses, stop them. And Moses says, let them go. What did they say? They said Mo- that prophecy was Moses will die, will pass away, and Joshua will lead them into the promised land. So this is at the beginning of the 40 years. It was There was already a prophecy. There was already It was already being foretold on multiple levels, whether from Eldad and Medad in their prophecy or from the omission of Moses' name in the story of the spies uh, as to who would be going to the land. There were already, there were already foreshadowings of the fact that Moses was not going to go into the land. Yeah, it took him to hit a rock maybe to like formalize it, so and, and to kind of pin it on that, but it, all, it, it seems pretty clear that at this point already, the writing was on the wall for, uh, for Moses. On, on, we can ask the question, why? If he hadn't hit the rock yet, what, what did he do wrong? On this level, we would have to answer that he didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. But he was the ultimate leader, and the ultimate leader goes down with his ship. You know, the captain goes down with the ship, and, and if his generation, if his people are not going in, he's not going in. It's kind of, kind of the way it works, right? It's like his generation at this point is going to die in the desert over the next 40 years. It kind of makes sense that he's going to stay with him. He's the leader. The Medrash says something fascinating, that God offered Moses a chance to go in, but if he would go in and leave his people behind, then when Mashiach comes, and the resurrection of the dead comes around, they would never be resurrected. They would be forever lost. Lost generation. And Moses said, no deal. I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to take that offer. I'll, I'll stay with them, and we're, we're going to go together. I'm not going to abandon them. So, I mean, it gets really back, I think, on a deeper level, it gets back to this idea of leadership and a really tight bond. I mean, these people... And him, they might have complained, they might have fought, you know, sometimes, but like that was a tight connection. From each from slavery to freedom and all the stuff in between, they they were tight. So Moses, it wasn't his destiny to leave and abandon them. It was his destiny to remain with them. It took hitting the rock, you know, that was uh, like the official the official cause of you know his not going in, but really it was uh, all sorts of other reasons and factors in a buildup. Anyway, but that's uh, vis-a-vis Moses. Hope that clarifies. Yeah, thank you, Rabbi. Sure, no problem. All right, great to see you. Sarah, we'll see you, please God, tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad channel. Have a great day. Take care. Great to study together. Thank you as well, Rabbi. Take care. Bye-bye. Great.